6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 7 and 8. Tonight we are in Jude, verse 7, where Jude continues drawing upon three Old Testament examples of apostasy. Jude is an epistle for our time. He deals with end-time apostasy, apostasy in general, but very specifically we'll discover it's focusing very much on the end time. It's very appropriate for it to be a preface or prelude or what have you to the book of Revelation. And uh, so he has drawn three examples of corporate punishment. Israel, in verse 5. The angels that sinned, verse 6. And 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah. These are three references that Jude makes. He presumes that his readers are quite acquainted with this background. And obviously all of you are well acquainted with this background, but for some of them that might have joined us who's not, we'll review that, okay? But uh, you know, so we'll have we'll use this as an excuse to review Sodom and Gomorrah. Idioms in our language. We speak of Sodom and Gomorrah very glibly, and Jude does too. Verse seven, he says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Well, that seems straightforward enough. We all know Sodom and Gomorrah, and and we all know that they did things they shouldn't. All very comfortable until you stop and ask yourself, to whom was Jude writing? Was he writing to the people that sponsor cable TV? Was he writing to the world? He was writing to believers. He was writing to the church. Remember? We cover, I will review all that. We covered that earlier, the earlier verses. Jude, a brother of James, both of them brothers of Jesus Christ. Writing an epistle, in this case, to the, to the believers, to the church, warning them of the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a little bizarre. If this was a warning to the unsaved world, a secular hedonistic group, you'd understand that. And we can delve into all the practices of, the, of those early days and what have you and, and uh, with a certain aloofness. But as we move down this path, let's be cautious because Jude has selected this as a warning to you and I. You and I generally, I don't think, identify with Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude is holding it up as an example to the church. And that should get our attention. What can believers learn from the record of these old cities? There were actually five of them, uh, so-called cities of the plain, which God destroyed because of their terrible wickedness. 
And as we go down this path, uh, I'm going to suggest two, at least two dimensions. One is prophetic, that this is prophetic. The whole epistle will be increasingly focusing on uh, as a prophecy. So it's prophetic of the apostasy in the church, in Christendom, in the last days. And we're going to discover in this epistle four steps. They, we've already seen it back in verse 4 that these apostates, these men who creep into the church, will turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. We went through that when we went through verse 4, if you recall. We're going to discover in verse 8 that they defile the flesh. We generally think of apostate teaching as doctrinal, heresy, those kinds of things. We don't link it to fleshly lusts. Defile the flesh, verse 8. In verse 10, we're going to discover that they corrupt themselves uh, with brute beasts. And in verse 16, they walk after their own lusts. That same phrase that Peter uses, also speaking of the end times. We're going to discover as we go, just to let you know where we're headed, that apostasy begins with intellectual doubts, but it's certain to end with physical degradation. That's a, that's a link that's not obvious, but the Word reveals it to us. Now, what I would like to do tonight, uh, since we glibly use Sodom and Gomorrah as phrases, I think I'd like to use this as an opportunity to go back and review a few chapters, very, very superficially, but still enough to get in perspective uh, in the book of Genesis. What is Sodom and Gomorrah all about? Now, a couple of things. The first thing that may shock you is that Sodom and Gomorrah, we all know them as some kind of reference point or yardstick of sin. Fire and brimstone came down. Great. Well, what we may not realize is that they are referenced here in the, in the mode of apostasy. That implies something that you and I normally wouldn't associate with them, and that is that they once knew the truth. That puts a little different light on it, doesn't it? And that's going to take us before we're through this evening to Romans 1. Now, a couple other things as we get into a review of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'd like to stretch your perspective a little bit. Sodom and Gomorrah, the event that we're going to look at when they were destroyed, was only about a roughly 450 years after the flood. Shem was still alive and walking the earth. One of the sons of Noah. In fact, he had about 50 years left in his life. So it's, a, it's hard to get used to the chronologies back then because uh, it's just, you know, we, 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 we failed to t give full countenance to the um, effect of that extended longevity. A couple of other things you might be interested in, and I'll get the archaeological notes out of the way first so you can get a perspective of this. We're very much indebted to Dr. Melvin Grove Kyle, um, who has done a lot of work in the whole archaeological background of the cities of the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the three others. One of the five cities, which we'll discover they pleaded, Lot pleaded not to destroy, Zoar, wasn't and has been found and excavated. The rest of them are, we believe, under the southern end, southeastern end of the Dead Sea. So to get this in perspective, the Dead Sea itself, I don't know how many of you had a chance to visit it. It's an interesting, but it's the lowest point on the earth in terms of you know, altitude. It's uh, 1,286 feet below sea level. And it's the terminus of the Jordan River. The Jordan River starts way up north and, and uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, goes into the Sea of Galilee, all the way down north to south. 
it ends in the Dead Sea, which has no outlet. All the water from the Jordan flows into the Dead Sea and it evaporates from the heat, leaving a mineral residue. So it increasingly gets uh, uh, an increasing mineral content that causes the water to be so brackish that you float. If you get in, it's very bizarre because you can almost float waist high. It's a strange experience. You don't get the water in your eyes or drink it because it isn't too healthy because it's excessively mineral content. But it's something you visit and it's a, a fun to do. And the, the, But the Dead Sea is roughly about 40 miles long and about 10 miles wide. And it's sort of in two pieces, a northern segment which is very deep, about 1,400 feet in some places. The southern end is very shallow. It's about 10 miles long, and it's 10 or 20 feet deep. And most archaeologists believe that in the time we're talking about, this wasn't that way, and it's partly in result of the catastrophe over Sodom and Gomorrah that they were not only covered, but uh, are, are under, if you will, uh, that portion of the Dead Sea. So at the southern segment covers a good portion of the area that's called the Vale of Siddim, and this shows up in Genesis 14 and other places in the scripture. At the time of Abraham and Lot and so forth, this was a very fertile area. In fact, when Lot gets his choice, he chooses it in contrast to the high ground in Hebrew in which Abraham takes over. When they decide to split up, they, uh, they go their own ways, so to speak. There are five cities involved, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zor, Adma, and Zebulun. And all five are destroyed, but Sodom and Gomorrah are the conspicuous ones. Something else, as we before we jump in, you should get a perspective. Don't visualize these as quaint little towns. We have found their tombs, their cemeteries, and from the tombs that they find, they conclude there's over one million people buried. So the population in that region at that time was very substantial. So it's a whole different perspective, perhaps, as we use this occasion to take a look at what's Sodom and Gomorrah all about. Well, they're first mentioned in Genesis 10. We won't bother chasing that down, but they're mentioned as uh, uh, in Genesis 10 um, on the border of the Canaanites. Now, one of the main things that occurs, and again, we, um, in the interest of time, I won't take up the details, but in Genesis 13, Abraham and his brother's son, which whom we would call a nephew, Lot, both had herds that were growing very large. And it was decided in Genesis 13, Lot, that they would split up to avoid conflicts among their herdsmen and so forth. By the way, should you understand something else? Most scholars who have studied Abraham believe he may have been one of the wealthiest persons, person on the earth at the time. We're going to see that Abraham, when there's a war, dispatches 318 trained soldiers that were born under his own tents. And he defeats five, an alliance of four kings that had just defeated five others. So Abraham is not just some little nomadic herdsman, Bedouin-type little itinerant culture. Abraham is a very powerful. He has many, many resources. The study of Abraham, uh, I commend to you, obviously. Anyway, uh, Lot decides, uh, Abraham gives Lot his choice, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Vale of Siddim and chose that area. This is all in Genesis 13. And one of the things you can do, 
and we do in our study of this chapter, in our Genesis study, is point out there's a, there's a very predictable series of events that occur with Lot. He first of all lifted up his eyes, and so he went as as uh, went by sight rather than by faith. He chose all the plain of Jordan rather than what God might have him do, and he elected to separate himself from Abraham. Now you can around each one of those build some spiritual lessons. And uh, since we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight, I won't repeat all of that. I'll just highlight that to you. And if you're interested in that, I commend you to get the Genesis tapes on chapter 13 and do a study of Lot's walk, if you will. Lot is going to separate, as I indicated. Now, in contrast to this, Abraham is seen as choosing the heights of Hebron. The word Hebron means communion. So even in the place names and in the styling of the narrative there, we see the Holy Spirit carrying a message to us as to the contrast between these two. Now, don't look at Lot as an unbeliever. We're going to talk a lot about Lot and all the mistakes he made. But in Peter's epistle in chapter 2, and we will, or we will look at this, in 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll look at this later, Peter describes Lot as a righteous man. And in fact, God goes to some length to extricate Lot a second time from the ruin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Good, I got a lot of puzzle things. You know that God went after Lot twice. We'll come to that in a minute. We find uh, as we get in Genesis 13 that Lot uh, elects to dwell in the cities of the plain. And if you're studying, if you're doing a devotional study of the book of Genesis, you can sense all through the story of Lot that each step of the way, and there's about six major steps, that Lot is making the wrong choices. We are not admonished to dwell in the earth. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. Where's our citizenship? In heaven, you bet. We're not Republicans or Democrats, we're monarchists. That's an easy position today if you look at the Republicans and the Democrats, but I mean... <laughs> now, uh, and we get to the end of chapter 13, we find Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. It gets worse. But uh, this gives rise to our excuse to get into Genesis 14. And uh, I'll just, uh, we can look at it, but I'm not going to try to read it. We'll, we'll get bogged down too much. But in Genesis 14, we have the first war. The first war. Well, you can turn with me. We'll just try to skim it through lightly uh, because there, that's the first occasion. And it's, it's kind of instructive to see, uh, uh, get, may give you a little different perspective of these, of these events that uh, fill the Torah. We're going to find as Genesis 14 opens up that there's a group of uh, four kings. They make war with five other kings. Now, incidentally, the four are, the, are from the sons of Shem and the five of the sons of Ham. And so you can make a big thing of that if you like. And, and you can even come to the idea that, gee, these four guys overthrew these bad guys down south. And so you can sort of take sides if you like. But I have a feeling the Holy Spirit's giving us some other instructions. And I, I personally suggest as we look at this is to focus on Abraham. Abraham's not involved on either side. He doesn't draw his sword and champion a cause. 
He stays in communion with God, he is, but he's not a pacifist. When the occasion calls for it, he knowledgeably feels trained servants. In any case, uh, in the early verses, and we won't wade through all these unpronounceable names, but the battle of the four kings and the five kings is the first recorded war in the, in the scripture. The five kings to the south involve the cities we talked about, Sodom, Gomorrah, and three others. Now, if you really are a mystic, I want you to be impressed with me tonight because you, you would not ever believe I could pass up an opportunity like this to get mystical, but I'm going to. But you, if you want to look behind those names, get a good commentary and dig into it, and you'll have a field day as to, because they're the names of major demon gods. And it's kind of fun. You know, after, but I figured after Genesis 6, last time, we really need to get back to something a little more um, practical. But, uh, but I just, I'll, I'll throw that out as a footnote for those of you that uh, want to spend some library time and the spooky stuff can, can chase that down. But the point is, I don't want to mislead you. These were four and five real kings. The battle is much studied. And the five kings to the south lost. We'll pick this up about verse 10. The veil of Siddim was full of slime. Oh, slime pits. Another thing, the term in the Hebrew... It's translated in the King James slime is bitumen, or think of oil. Not, now, bear in mind, we're not talking about petroleum economy here, so it's not that useful to them, you with me? But you, that'll give you some insight, and it also leads to some speculation by speculations by geologists as to what actually happened geologically when the Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. But the point is, you'll cite there are hints in the scripture here already, it was full of slime pits, or uh, uh, visualize a little bit of tar pits kind of thing, okay? And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supplies and went their way. So, okay, these five guys of the south lost. The four guys from up north won. Why is this in the scripture? Because of verse 12. There was one guy that they spoiled, along with, obviously, thousands of others, but they said, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Now, spiritually, you can make a big thing as what was Lot doing in Sodom in the first place, and we'll shortly discover that Abram, when he hears this, says enough's enough, and he takes care of it. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's interesting, one of the morals here is you can take you know, how does the proverb say that a dog returns to his own vomit? You'd think that Lot would have learned his lesson. Where does he end up three chapters later? Sodom. And he's an alderman. I mean, sitting at the city gate. He's, a, he's part of the city council. So uh, uh, it's pathetic. But in any case, Lot, Abram's brother. Now, Abram, here's, his, here's Abram. This is before his name gets changed. But if I say Abraham, pardon me, I'm using the name by which we know him better. Abram and Sarai had their names changed. Abram and Sarai and Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was the son of Hagar, who was an Egyptian from Ham, which had a curse. So if Abram read his scriptural homework, he knew that, Abr that Ishmael couldn't be of the promise. God was going to handle it his way. But if you take Abram, Sarai, and Ishmael, they add up to 961. You might want to write that down. It's very important. 961. That's the square of 31. Aren't you excited about that? <laughs> well, let me help you a little further. There's only one square, 13 and 31, which if you switch the numbers, switch the square. 
13 squared is 169. 31 squared is 961. And the Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic rabbis, believe they've rediscovered the law of the square. Not only do all Hebrew letters have numerical values, the words thus have numerical value, and the all kinds of interesting discoveries. 961 is called by the Kabbalists the signature of God. The opening stanzas of the creation hymn in Genesis and the closing st stanzas of the hymn in Genesis add up to 961. And so they look for that and they see that as one of God's appointed seals. Why? Thir 31 is the number of L, the name for God. Nine, 31 squared is 961. They discovered all kinds of interesting places. Example, why did I bring all this up? Because Abram and Sarai and Ishmael add up to 961. When Abraham's name is changed, Sarah's name, Sarai's name to Sarah. Abraham, Sarah, and Ishmael don't add up to 961, but Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac do. Isn't that interesting? That's my excuse. That's one reason I'm really a mystic, okay? And it's also interesting that what God, the way he changed Abraham's name was to put in a Hebrew letter that's basically a breath. Abraham. And that breath is the Ruach of the Spirit. And so it's interesting to see what God is doing. But this event takes place prior to the name change, so I apologize if I read it wrong, because I, it's anyway, Abraham, the one we all know and love. Verse 13, And there came one that had escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew. Now this is the first place the word Hebrew appears in the Scripture. It means the one who crossed over from the river. That's what most commentators believe. It's also derives from Eber, which was an ancestor. But in any case, uh, it's generally viewed, uh, the, the term Hebrew is first used here. Abraham was known as the Hebrew. He was one who crossed over. He had his, I assume, somewhat nomadic empire there. And it's somebody that escaped from this devastating battle, came and told Abraham, who dwelt by the Oaks of Mamre, and we're going to come back to the Oaks of Mamre, Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Abner, and they were confederate with Abraham. So we had an alliance here. Now, verse 14 is interesting. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, what did he do? He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318 of them, and pursued them unto Dan, that is, way to the north. Now, this word, the Hebrew word here for trained servants, occurs nowhere else in the Bible. But it does occur in some early Egyptian documents, and it's there used of trained mercenary soldiers. So the term doesn't mean just trained like they read some manuals. They practiced, were expert at what? The art of war. Interesting, provocative insight. Abraham is not a docile pacifist. He is a steward of resources and has anticipated, apparently, the need to, to bear arms. I think that's very fascinating. And we have here recorded, without much comment, the fact that he dispatches these trained servants and says, born under his own house, and his house is big, La Tem, you know, it's a, an expansive term, I'm sure, but 318 of these pros. And what they're going to do is defeat a confederation of four kings. And these four kings are no pushovers because they've just defeated the five-king alliance in the south, which included Sodom, which included Lot, and that's how Lot was taken prisoner. You know, he was spoiled. 
So verse 50, we also find that Abraham was quite a general. God has many, many gifts. And apparently one of the spiritual gifts given to Abraham at this time was generalship because he does pretty shrewdly here. He divided his men against them. He and his servants by night smote them, pursued them unto Hoba, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Interesting guy. Now, incidentally, if you go up to Laish, up to the north in the area of Dan, they have just recently discovered a mud gate. Mud gates, by, by the description of the, the uh, art form, don't last. We've read about them, heard about them, never found one. Up in Laish, there is one that apparently was made and buried. Something happened to bury this so that in such a way that it didn't get destroyed over these thousands of years. They've recently excavated, and it's one of the sites, if you're archaeologically oriented, if you're in Israel, you can go up to the north to the area of Don and see the gate at Laish. That gate might have been a gate that Abraham went through at this time in Genesis 14, which is kind of exciting. When we visited Israel last year, it was it's strange that that particular event, that particular exposition somehow captured the imagination of the whole group. We saw many interesting things, but the mud gate at Laish somehow was a real link to the deep past, past. It was fascinating to see a gate that Abraham himself may have gone through. And indeed, it's possible, perhaps, that the attack and the destruction gave rise to an event that caused this gate to be buried before the elements uh, destroyed it, because these are not a, of a material composition that endures like stone kinds of things do. And it's, uh, so it's, it's considered a major archaeological find. In any case, now, Abraham is obviously the man of the hour, uh, he comes back, and we won't finish 14, but there is an event I want you to be aware of. When he comes back, he stiff-arms the king of Sodom, who wants to reward him, and he won't take that because he doesn't want... He regards the king of Sodom as aloof, a distant nut. He didn't do it for him. He did it for, Ab for Lot. But he does do obeisance to another king. Abraham sees himself senior to so the king of Sodom and all these other characters, but he sees himself junior, if you will, to the king of Salem. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <music>